You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Jeffrey Tubin wrote a piece back in October of last year. Remember October of last year? better times. It was right after the grab by the pussy tape was released back when Republicans were making noises about pulling Trump off the ticket somehow. Back when Mike Pence briefly removed his tongue from Donald Trump's ass long enough to contemplate dropping out of the race himself. And that piece by Tubin that ran in the October 3rd issue last year of The New Yorker was headlined The Supreme Court After Scalia. Tubin, of course, covers the Supreme Court for The New Yorker, and he examined what would happen, what sorts of decisions we might see if the court should suddenly have a liberal majority, something the court hasn't had for decades. But it really at that moment, October 2016, it looked like the Supreme Court was going to have that liberal majority again after Hillary Clinton won the election, which she was definitely going to do because we weren't going to put some pussy-grabbing sexual predator in the Oval Office were we? So, Citizens United, which allowed billionaires to buy elections, we would see that overturned. The decisions that gutted the Voting Rights Act, which is a law that made it just a little harder for the GOP to prevent black people and poor people and young people from voting, we would see that decision overturned. Decisions banning states from throwing people in jail for being too poor to pay their fines. Decisions possibly requiring uh, lawyers to be provided to people who are being sued in civil court as well so that people who could afford lawyers couldn't destroy people who couldn't afford lawyers. All sorts of things we might have seen. The penultimate line of Tubin's piece is the one that really guts me. For the first time in decades, Tubin wrote, there is now a realistic chance that the Supreme Court will become an engine of progressive change rather than an obstacle to it. Yeah, well, that was then. That was October of last year. Like I said, painful to read, doubly painful to read out loud, especially the day after Neil, that truck driver should have frozen to death. Gorsuch was sworn in as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. The 5-4 conservative majority has been saved, thanks to Mitch McConnell, who prevented Barack Obama from appointing a justice in the last year of his term. Asked by Chuck Todd this weekend on Meet the Press if this was a new standard, if the Senate wouldn't allow any future presidents, Democrat or Republican, to appoint a justice to the court during an election year, McConnell chuckled and dismissed the question as absurd. Because it is absurd. Senate Republicans made up a brand new rule that only applies when the president is black or democratic or both. Don't be ridiculous, Chuck, by assuming that that rule would apply to a white Republican president. All right, here's the thing. And here's what you guys are going to get sick of over the next 16 months. Donald Trump might get to appoint another justice or two or three. There are two justices over the age of 80, Ginsburg, liberal, Kennedy, conservative, and one pushing 80, Breyer, liberal. If all three should retire, please don't retire, Ginsburg or Breyer, please do not retire, or drop dead, please don't drop dead, in the next year or two, oi, 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 it's almost too terrible to contemplate. The only fix, the only way to protect ourselves and the court and the country in the post-filibuster era brought to us by the GOP is for Democrats to win back the Senate in 2018. 
which sounds doable when you consider that Dems only need to take three seats. Democrats have 48 seats. Republicans have 52. If Dems take three seats, they win a majority of the Senate. 34 senators will be running. There will be 34 races for the Senate. So that seems doable, 34 races. If the Dems just can take three on top of the ones they already hold, they take the Senate and protect us from terrible future Supreme Court nominees, from our terrible sexual predator president. But when you dig into the numbers, Democrats are defending 25 seats, Republicans defending only nine. And some of the seats Democrats have to defend are in states that Donald Trump won, some of them in a landslide like West Virginia. So this is your warning, your advance warning. You're going to hear these initials a lot over the next 16 months on my Little Sex Advice podcast, DSCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, DSCC.org. I am going to be pushing that. I am going to be mentioning that website a bit, and I'm going to be encouraging you to click on contribute and throw some money into these Democratic Senate races in 2018 so that we can prevent Donald Trump from appointing anyone else to the Supreme Court, so we can prevent the national tragedy on top of the national tragedy that is Trump. We could prevent, hopefully, the national tragedy that would be a Supreme Court with a 6-3 or 7-2 conservative majority. We are going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight like hell between now and November 2018. Stay engaged. Stay in the fight. And this is about sex, too. Some people complain when they hear me go off on politics at the top of the show that I should stick to sex. The Supreme Court will be issuing rulings that impact LGBT people, that impact reproductive rights and freedoms, that impact privacy. There will be lawsuits about these laws that are allowing internet service providers to sell your browser histories. That is about privacy and that is about sexual privacy as well. Think about your internet browser history and the things in it that you would really not like bought and sold and made public. Probably touches on your sex life. So this is a completely legitimate topic for us on our little sex advice podcast to cover. The Supreme Court meddles in and has always meddled in our sex lives. And so people who have sex lives and who are interested in sex, you should take a healthy interest in who sits on the Supreme Court. And you should get used to hearing me mention dscc.org and encouraging you to throw some money that way too, not just to the ACLU, not just to Planned Parenthood, but also to the DSCC. And it's an important front on the fight that we are in, like it or not. Coming up on the Magnum edition of today's Savage Lovecast, Mark and Draco, the genius comic artist behind Love is Love, and on the micro, Leah Torres, Dr. Leah Torres, is here to discuss with us the magical, magical penis. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 26-year-old bi girl living on the West Coast. And I'm starting a project. I'm an artist and working on a radio show that also is going to go with the performance piece, whatever. But I'm doing it with the collaboration of um, someone who is really well-connected and whose company I really enjoy. But we are touching on sex a little bit about a lot of other things, but we we do touch on sex a little bit. And when we've been talking about that particular part of the project, I've just gotten vibes that if I was down to fuck him, he would say yes. And I want to keep it professional. I'm not sure if I should say outright, like, hey, uh, I really want to work on this project with you because I think that you're really useful to this project. I think we're going to build something really great but I can not ever have you hit on me. 
again, or at least like really try not to. Or if, you know, if I should just kind of let it go and just not bring it up because I don't want to make it weird. Uh, professional relation, like relationships at work are easy because you're not, you're never really talking about sex. So if someone violates that, it's, I can suss out why that feels wrong a little easier than in a relationship, a professional relationship where we are talking about sex and we are talking about what turns us on and stuff like that. So murky lines, not sure what boundaries I should put around that. Uh, you're a professional in talking about sex, so I thought I'd ask. You say you've gotten vibes from this guy that he might be interested in you, might be sexually attracted to you, might be down to fuck. Then later you say you want to speak to him and tell him that you'd rather not have him hit on you again, but he hasn't actually hit on you. You've just picked up on these vibes. He hasn't said, would you like to fuck? He hasn't asked you out on a date. He hasn't made a pass at you. You're just sensing that he's sexually attracted to you. All right. That happens. People get crushes on people. People are sexually attracted to people. People aren't always sexually attracted to people who feel the same way about them. And if he is keeping it in check, if he isn't sending you creepy hub hub vibes, if he isn't making eyes at you, if you just get the sense that he is attracted to you in a way that you are not attracted to him, there are ways to handle that that don't involve preemptively shutting down a pass that has not yet been made because that is going to be awkward. That is going to be uncomfortable. Hey, just so you know, I get the sense you want to fuck me. I would never want to fuck you. Just so we're clear, I know you're interested in me. I know you'd like to put it in me, but you are not putting it in me because I am not having it. Not yours. Not ever. That's going to queer your relationship a little bit in the old sense of the word queer. I think there are other ways to signal to him that you're not interested that don't involve making assumptions because you could have misread these signals. You don't go into what these signals are, but perhaps you're misreading him. Perhaps he's just being affable in a way because you have this working relationship that he's sending signals he's not intending to send and that don't actually reflect how he actually feels and you getting out in front of that and making assumptions about these quote-unquote vibes could really screw up your working relationship, which you would not like to do. So you might want to mention other people you're involved with. You might want to casually mention someone that you're going out on a date with that you're very excited to go out on a date with, whether that person actually exists or not, is immaterial, just so he knows that you are out there and sexually active and pursuing and seeking others. And he's not someone that you're seeking or pursuing. In fact, he's someone that you feel comfortable enough confiding in about who you're seeking and pursuing, which marks him out as someone you're not interested in. Now, this flies in the face of my usual advice for people, for women in particular, to be direct and to say how you feel. This is a carve-out. This is an exception to that rule because he hasn't hit on you, because you have a working relationship. Unless these vibes rise to the level of a kind of preemptory impeachment, unless these vibes are creepy, nonverbal, physical passes that he's making at you. He's getting into your personal space. He's arranging to have time with you alone in a way that is unnecessary and dot, dot, dotty. Like he's getting you alone at times and just letting these silences or looks hang in the air. And it's clear that he's actually making the pass at you. He's hitting on you. I don't think you need to go to him and say, no, not interested. I think you say, no, not interested when he asks you out or makes a pass. If indeed it is just vibes, if it's just something you're picking up on, you don't need to preemptively shut this down because it may not have actually happened yet.
So a little misdirection. And then if he escalates, or if indeed the vibes are more than vibes, then you can say, hey, look, just so we're clear, just so we're on the same page. I like you. I respect you. I enjoy working with you, but I'm not interested in you in the same way that you are interested in me. And da, 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 da. Hi, Dan. I'm Matt, a straight guy married to a woman for near 10 years. We have two beautiful young girls and a deeply connected, loving, trusting relationship with each other. Here's the thing. She had always considered herself bi, but now finds herself only attracted to women. She has come to understand that she's gay. She wants to be with a woman in a way that can't be ignored. We are both struggling with how to honor each other in this situation. She still enjoys sex with me sometimes, but her interest is so much lower than my own that I feel like our lovemaking is infrequent and unconnected. I want to feel desired and she wants a woman. Both of us consider ourselves monogamous but have come to realize that we need to be open to explore other relationship styles that lead us to be together in a committed relationship while having both of our needs met. With all this going on, we have thought of some options and some of the things that we're thinking about are one, trying to have find a girlfriend for both of us and forming a triad relationship. Another is having an open relationship which could be scary for us because we're unsure of jealousy and resentment. Like one of us would be out on a date getting laid and the other one would be staying home taking care of the kids. We're also concerned that one of us would just decide to call it quits on our relationship once a suitable other partner is found. Lastly, we've thought about splitting up. And this one's tough because we do love each other deeply. We do want to be together and we both have a desire to be available for our kids every day. But she's gay, and we don't know if our relationship is even doable because of it. So how can we navigate this situation? Are there any other possibilities we've overlooked? What advice do you have for us? Marriage, a history. How love conquered marriage. It's a really terrific history of the institution of marriage by Stephanie Kuntz, who's a faculty member at Evergreen State College here in Washington State. I really recommend this book. It is terrific. And one of the things that it sort of unpacks is the – definition, so-called definition of traditional marriage 300 years ago is very different from our current definition of traditional marriage. Uh, that subtitle, How Love Conquered Marriage. Marriage was not about love. It was not about sexual attraction. It was not about passion. Marriage was about family and property and institutions and marrying up two plots of land if you were peasants or marrying up two provinces if you were aristocrats or royalty. And traditionalists were alarmed in the 18th century, 16th, 17th, 18th century, as people began to marry for love, as love moved to the center of marriage, as love became the reason people married. And traditionalists were alarmed because love is a fleeting and unstable sexual attraction, particularly fleeting and unstable, romantic love, passion love, that that is not something that you can count on to last over the decades. You had a spouse, you had a partner, you, you married, you had a husband, you had a wife, but that you didn't seek romantic fulfillment within that relationship. If you were a woman, you couldn't have sexual or romantic fulfillment. That wasn't in the cards for you. And if you were a man, you had a wife. And if you were lucky, maybe there was passion there. Maybe there's attraction there. And when there was, that was notable. People remarked upon that. Uh, but if you're a man, you'd sought that outside the marriage because that was fleeting and unstable. And marriage was supposed to be not fleeting. It was supposed to be permanent and forever and the definition of stability. Anyway, listening to your call, I began to think about Stephanie Kuntz's book, Marriage of History. It actually inspired me to go yank it off a shelf and put it on the nightstand because I'd like to reread it. It's really good and you should all read it. 
Because it sounds like you and your wife, the only solution is a traditional marriage in the 16th, 17th century sense and previous centuries senses of traditional marriage. That your marriage, if it is to survive, is going to be companionate. It's going to be respectful. There will be a bond there uh, that's around the roles that you play. You are the husband. She is the wife. You are co-parents. You are the firm. You are an economic institution and a familial institution. But within that bond does not exist romantic or sexual fulfillment because your wife is gay and you would like to have sex with a woman who's not laying there indulging you and being your fleshlight for 20 minutes, you want to have sex with someone who's attracted to you. So for you to have that, you're going to have to seek it outside your marriage as traditionalists would have urged you to do three centuries ago. And your wife is going to have to seek that outside your marriage as traditionalists would not have urged her to do three centuries ago. You could perhaps find that keystone. You could find that they call them unicorns because they are fucking hard to find. That woman, that bi woman who is attracted to both you and your wife equally, and you could have a sort of polyamorous V-shaped triad where that person is in a romantic and sexual relationship with both of you and neither of you are in a romantic or sexual relationship with each other, although you are married to each other, you and your wife. That person is hard to find. Easier to find will be people who would like to date you separately and discreetly from your wife and vice versa. People might want to date your wife where you could say to people, I am married, this is my wife. It is a companionate marriage. We are polyamorous. We have other romantic partners, but we are committed to each other, committed to our kids, committed to our family. That might be easier for you to find. That will, however, raise the logistical issues that you are concerned about, that you will be going out on dates. You will be less available, particularly when you're having that NRE stage, new relationship energy stage of relationship, and so will your wife, that you will be pulled apart a little bit. When you listen to poly people talk about their relationships, there's scheduling involved. There's prioritizing that is involved. And everybody, particularly with the more partners that there are, everybody has to agree to get a little less. But you can finesse that. You can make that work. Lots of committed, married couples who are polyamorous make that work. And you can too. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 28-year-old sex worker. And I have a question about a client and about how I handled something. So I have a client, he is about 25 years old, so he's younger than me. And um, he's super into self-improvement and um, almost annoyingly so. But, you know, when we are together, of course, we have sex, but we also go shopping and um, I help him find clothes that could, you know, fit him well, that could possibly attract a potential mate for him because he wants a real girlfriend. And he knows that I'm not a girlfriend. He knows that I'm a sex worker and blah, blah, blah. I help him with his OkCupid profile, stuff like that. Well, recently he went on a date, well, lots of dates with this girl he's been seeing for about two weeks. And um, he was texting me because he was annoyed with her. He's like, I've been hanging out with this girl for two weeks all the time. And we make out, we make out, we make out, but she won't fuck me. She won't fuck me. And he's like angry about it. And I told him like, you're kind of being a jerk. Like, obviously she's into you. She keeps hanging out with you. She's kissing you. But some girls wait. Like, and he started like showing, I guess, some true characteristics about himself 
And I told him, for someone who's so into self-improvement, his insides were looking pretty ugly. And I told him that I don't want to see him anymore as a client because what he was telling me was just, I think, so rude. He was calling her a lot of names and she was naive and stupid. And it just was disheartening, I guess. And um, because I thought I kind of knew this person. And I'm wondering if I did the right thing by telling him that I didn't want to see him anymore. Um, I'm wondering if I'm doing a disservice to other women that he might possibly come in contact with. I wish I could force everyone who hates or despises or opposes sex work and looks down on or sneers at sex workers. Wish I could force all those people to listen to your call. I am familiar with this dynamic in the client sex worker relationship where the sex worker really has a calling, really sees it as a calling and is as much sexual outlet as they are coach, therapist, healer. You're working on this guy to help improve him, to get him to a place where he is dateable, to get him in good and decent working order so that the woman that he ends up with down the road as a girlfriend or or a spouse is going to benefit from all the work that you did on him in advance to, to, to improve him. And, and he knew he needed that kind of improvement and he went back to you for that kind of improvement and paid you and helped you and you listened to him and you drew him out and then he stepped on a rake or he – fucked it up. He demonstrated that his problems go deeper than perhaps you're able in your interactions to assist him with. He has entitlement issues and perhaps anger issues. And so you've dropped him as a client. And that is absolutely your right. It is absolutely your right to drop him as a client. If the way he talks about this woman makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel unsafe, or makes you feel like it's futile, makes you feel like all of your work has been for naught. I wonder though if your work hasn't been for naught. And I'm not telling you that you have to take him back as a client, but I just want to put this bug in your ear that you had a relationship with him where he was confiding in you and perhaps he was venting to you in a way that seemed disrespectful and was disrespectful, absolutely disrespectful. You say he was calling her names and calling her stupid. And you intervened by cutting him off as a client. He now understands how fucked up his behaviors were, hopefully. There are other forms of intervention. You can leverage your presence in his life to get him into a different kind of service provider relationship, a different kind of therapy that he may need, an anger management counselor, get him into see an actual therapist or shrink because he may need that. And if it was a condition on continuing to see you, for you to continue to work with him, for him to get that additional kind of help, Perhaps he could have done that. And I'm not laying a guilt trip on you. You're obviously someone who takes the work that you do very seriously and you see the good that you can do with the work that you do. And I'm not saying that you failed by not leveraging yourself uh, against his shitty behavior to get him additional help. He's not your responsibility. But there were options beyond cutting him off. And he was an ongoing project of yours. And I wonder if perhaps you didn't bail on him a little too soon. Now, I wasn't on these calls. I didn't see these text messages from him. I don't know how he was talking. I don't know exactly what he was saying about this woman. And if he was saying things that made you feel unsafe, uncomfortable, and like he was a lost cause and not someone you ever wanted to be in a room with ever again, then you should drop him as a client, never be in a room with him again, and cut him out of your life and block his number. Absolutely. 
But if the reason you cut him off was to teach him a lesson and you think he is redeemable, there are other ways to teach him that lesson that may result in his redemption coming sooner rather than later. You invested a lot of time and energy and mental energy and effort in this particular client. If you feel unsafe and he's got to go, he's got to go. And I support you in cutting him off. But if this is just your way of showing him how fucked up his attitudes uh, toward this woman were and, and how consequential they could be for his relationships, including his relationship with you, there are other approaches and maybe more constructive approaches. And I leave it to you to consider whether or not you want to pick things back up. But I absolutely support whatever decision you make in the end. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay guy living in the New England area. Um, I consider myself a pretty sex-positive person. I've always had an interest in sexuality and sexual health, and I really love your podcast. But it's kind of a strange interest for me, since on the whole, my behavior suggests that I'm sort of a prude. Um, I hate that word for me. Maybe prude's the wrong word, uh, since my on-the-surface sexually conservative behavior doesn't really stem from any sort of religious background or moral high ground. But it's more that I just lack um, an interest in being sexually active with someone that I'm not involved with on some level. And because of that, I'm just not the most sexually experienced guy out there. Um, I came out pretty late when I was about 22 or so in college. And in that time, I had a fling with a guy who I slept with twice. Um, I've been single since for the past three years. And um, since then, I've had maybe two or three drunken one-night stands with guys with a couple handfuls of blowjobs in between. But um, on the whole, not that sexual experience. And it's not, again, that I'm sexually conservative per se. I actually see myself being pretty open in GGG once I'm seeing someone. It's just that I've enjoyed being single and the idea of um, going home with someone at a bar, hopping on Grindr for a quick lay really doesn't appeal to me at all. Um, but I am at the point where I'm ready to start dating and interested um, in exploring my own sex life as a part of that. And while I personally don't feel any shame around my own lack of sexual experience, I worry that other guys that I'm dating might where it's not the norm for a 25-year-old guy and a gay one at that to be able to count the number of times he's had sex on one hand. So um, if you have any advice around navigating hesitation guys might have around my lack of sexual experience as I start dating around, I would love to hear it. First of all, I want to say that I love hearing that 22 is coming out late because you know, I'm an ancient faggot. And when I, you know, when I was your age, 22 was roughly around the time that people did come out during or after college. <laughs> and I was this freak because I came out in high school. And it's just a real marker of where we're at now that people who came out at 22 feel like they're laggards because you would have yeah, felt like you awesome. were early out of the gate. <laughs> Here's the thing. And, and I want to give you a gift uh, from my dating and relationship uh, strategies that Let's I employed in my own life. Um, I'm worried that, you know, you cite these drunken one night stands that you've had. Mm -hmm. You had a relationship, uh, you, you're kind of a prude, perhaps, uh, you need to feel like, you know, someone well, or, or are attracted to them or want to be with them to be sexually active with them. And yet you've had two or three drunken one night stands. And what that says to me is, you know, you have these sexual desires and urges that you would like to act on and you won't let yourself unless you get drunk. Mm-hmm. And so then getting drunk becomes a way of, you know, your reptile brain and your dick overriding <laughs> the rest of your brain and forcing you to get out there and fuck because you need it because you need sex. And sex always wins. Sorry here from the future to tell you sex always wins <laughs> in the end. And sex will find a way to drag you along. And if sex, the reptile part of your brain, needs to pour vodka sodas down your throat 
to do what it wants with your body, it will. Yeah, that's fair. I guess it definitely is like a comfort factor there. And it has. It's not just a comfort factor. It's a way of giving yourself permission, you know, because then it was the booze that did that, not you. Yeah. And you want to make your own choices and not allow booze to make your choices or not be able to, you know, create a dynamic where you can point to booze and blame booze and exonerate yourself because that's about Mm self-shame, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, now having scolded you about booze and drinking, here's my gift to you. <laughs> uh, I'm like you. Uh, actually, I'm very similar. Like the, the, the way you describe, you know, not you know, wanting to feel something for someone before you're sexual with them, I'm the same way. Uh, I'm not a demisexual or a sapiosexual or a silly sexual or any one of those new things. But what it amounted to for me in the end was I had, you know, I you know, and as young and coming out, I like leapt on a few people and felt bad about it, felt weird about it. And, you know, the male gaze and the way men are, I know what women go through because of that for, to some extent. Um, <laughs> and that made me deeply uncomfortable. But what I uh, arrived at at the end and what worked for me was I really couldn't sleep with someone that I couldn't see myself dating that, uh, you know, I couldn't just jump into, I couldn't go to a bathhouse and suck 10 dicks. I couldn't have a one night stand mm-hmm. with someone that I knew nothing about that I grabbed it you know, two ten in the morning on the sidewalk outside of sidetracks on Halsey Street in Chicago. That I, it had to be someone that I thought, you know, that I interacted with at least enough when I was and sober enough in the bar that I liked them. That there was some spark. That there was some mutual interest. That they were someone that I could game out of my head and think, well, you know, if they keep revealing themselves to be this kind and decent person and sexy and hot person that I discovered that they are in the last hour or two. I could date this guy, so let's go fuck this guy. Mm-hmm. And that strategy I would actually say that's similar for me too. Okay, that strategy really worked for me because you know if you say to gay guys, "Well, we have to date for six months before we do anything sexual," you're going to have a really long road. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of fundamentalist Christian out evangelical gay guys who want to save it until they get married. I've been reading about these guys. You could date them, but. Your dating pool then could fit in your bathtub, probably. (laughs) And, you know, gay men tend to date dick first. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad strategy because I think sexual compatibility is really important when it comes to long-term relationship satisfaction. So establishing that early is wise. But you, like me, need to establish before, you know, getting the dicks out and establishing sexual compatibility, we need to establish... Not, this is the one, because there is no one, not, um, I'm sure, not, we've been dating for six months, but he could be. I know enough about him to extrapolate from what I've learned about him over the last couple hours that I could date this guy. So let's get our dicks out. (laughs) Or let's go home and get our dicks out. (laughs) And exchange phone numbers. And then if, you know, the sex is good and there's some spark there and there's breakfast and the conversation continues and... They don't suddenly announce they voted for Donald Trump or (laughs) they have a boyfriend they didn't tell you about or, you know, yeah. then you keep going. And then you don't need the alcohol to give yourself permission because the permission you're giving Mm -hmm. yourself is if I could see myself dating him, I can have a one night stand with him even if I just met him. Right, right. The potential would be huge. Like just kind of keeping that in mind. Right. And it does, you know, it it puts a little obstacle in the way. You're going to have to do a little bit of due diligence. You're going to have to establish that he's someone that you could see yourself dating. And that means Mm -hmm. more than just a drunken sup 
on Grinder, <laughs> and then him running over. Yeah. You're going to use your words first. You're going to meet. You're going to hang out. Maybe you meet in a bar. Maybe you hang out in a bar and then go home. Maybe you just chat for a while on Grinder. You know, I have friends who are on Grinder and I look over their shoulders sometimes because I am, uh, oh, Grinder came after uh, I met my husband. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've seen friends who just, you know, keep it to single syllable one word exchanges on Grinder. And it seems pretty, you know, cut and dried. Yes, no. And I see friends who get on Grinder who have long exchanges with people, who have long talks with people uh, mm-hmm. before they meet up. And you can be the latter. Okay. But again, don't put yourself in that corner where you can't give yourself permission to take a chance on someone that you have a good feeling about because then your body, mm-hmm. then your reptile brain is going to pour the vodka down your throat. And you're going to have messy one-night stands as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to hopeful one-night stands. Right, right. And when it comes to sexual inexperience, please don't worry about that. You'll, okay. get in, you'll get into bed with people you click with or people you don't. If you don't click with someone, it's not necessarily about your sexual inexperience and they shouldn't chalk it up mm-hmm. to that. You don't even have to disclose that. It may be just that you don't okay. click with that person. Don't blame yourself. Okay. You want to be GGG, good giving and game. Good means you got to get good at it. That can take some practice and you don't have to lie or misrepresent. If someone says that, you know, they love to be fisted, you don't have to pretend that you know how to do that or that you're even (laughs) interested in it and you don't want to fuck that up. You don't want to be an amateur trying to pull that off or shove that in. So don't lie about your experience, but it's nothing that you should be ashamed about either. And you'll find people you click with, you learn and grow as you feel more comfortable with them and emotionally secure with them. You can reveal more about, you know, you're feeling a little insecure about your inexperience. You'll probably be praised if they're still hanging out, if they're still getting together with you, if they're dating you. They're probably satisfied on some level with your sexual performance. And then you can explore together and grow together. And I promise you at 25, some of the other guys you're going to get with are going to be less experienced than you are. Okay. Give us a call back in a couple of years and let us know how uh, it goes for you after you adopt my dating and mating strategies. Cool. Will do. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight female from the Midwest, and I need some advice. So I've been dating someone since November. In fact, our first date was election night, so take that as you will. And everything's been going... Great, wonderful, no complaints until recently. I found out that he has slept with a coworker recently. I was at his house and was looking for something on the computer and a weird message popped up and I saw it and I read it. And when I confronted him, he admitted to everything. He's answered every single question that I have about it, basically not being a pussy about it. Initially, my reaction was to just leave and never see him again. But I've also had some pretty intense family issues going on during the course of our relationship that he has been unbelievably supportive of. So my question is, what do you what do you think? I don't know. I'm I'm torn. I'm torn between just this be a slip and moving on from there I'm torn between just like saying peace out dude I never want to see you again I don't know I don't know what to do I don't think that cheating is necessarily like 
a deal breaker, but I also feel really betrayed and kind of unsure of what I want. It seems to me that what you want or what you're asking me for is my permission to keep dating this guy, despite the fact that he fucked this coworker. You have my permission to keep dating this guy, despite the fact that he fucked this coworker. He has my permission to keep dating you, despite the fact that you snooped into his emails or text messages or whatever it was that popped up on that computer when you were sitting in front of it. You've only been dating since November it doesn't sound like you don't mention having had a conversation with him where you guys made a monogamous commitment to one another, where you formally declared that this was a sexually exclusive relationship. So at some point early in this four or five month long relationship of yours, it, he didn't regard it as exclusive. You felt that it was or assumed that it was and being straight as so many straight people do, you felt monogamous was the default setting when a relationship became sexual and you didn't need to talk about it and clearly you weren't on the same page. He's a good and decent guy and the evidence for that is the evidence that you cite. You've been going through some serious family issues, some serious family drama or trauma and he's been there. Now, a lot of people this early in a relationship, right at the start, within the first few months, wouldn't stick around for drama or trauma. They wouldn't feel obligated. They wouldn't feel as if that person had earned that kind of emotional commitment from them and drama and trauma commitment from them that early on. But that's something that you earn over time. If at the beginning of a relationship, you know, what you bring to the table isn't delight and pleasure and diversion, but serious obligations, a lot of people would run screaming a month or two into a relationship, not because they're assholes, because being there for someone early in a relationship when they're going through a lot of trauma may prompt you to make a premature commitment, may prompt you to make a commitment you may not be ready yet to make because you don't really know the person that well. And yet if you bond over not a sincere desire to be together, but bond over the two of you working on this thing together, you being there for that person, being their support system, and people worry, and I don't think it's an irrational worry, that they may end up bonding not with this person but over this trauma. And people don't want to bond over a trauma. They want to bond over a person. And then if that bond is there, they will be there for that person when the drama and trauma of life comes along. But early in a relationship, you can't know if you want to – if this is the person that you want to be with. If this is a person that you want to be with, not the, but a person that you want to be with and can be with uh, for the drama and trauma of life. But he was there for you and there for you early in the relationship. So perhaps you are a person that he would want to be there with long haul through the drama and trauma. And now he's brought a little drama and trauma to the relationship himself with this person he fucked. This other person that he had sex with early on within the first few months of your relationship. Perhaps before you had established that it was monogamous or sexually exclusive. Now you can have that conversation. Clearly, your expectation was and is that this should be and should have been sexually exclusive and a monogamous commitment that you two had made to each other. Can you both get on the same page now? Can he be monogamous? Does he want to have a sexually exclusive relationship with you or anyone else? Now you get to have that conversation. And in having that conversation, you will establish whether or not you should be together. But you have my permission not to run screaming. You have my permission not to just dump him outright because – you weren't on the same page because he made perhaps self-serving assumptions that were not true about how you felt or what you expected from him. Now you can make 
those things explicit and not assumptions. You can take the assumptions out of the mix. Then this becomes something that you two, some unpleasant thing, a bad thing that happened early in the relationship because assumptions. It becomes then, if you stay together, something you two worked through and got past. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, 21-year-old college student in the Southwest area, and I, I'm besides myself, and I'm just destroyed right now for because of what my ex has done to me. Um, so I was with this girl for about seven months, and it doesn't seem like such a long time, but we grew very connected, and you know, young romance, all that other bullshit. Um, after a while, I got tired of her neediness and her constant, I need you, I need you, I need you, her clinginess. And it had gotten to the point in our relationship to where if I asked for time myself, she asked, she threatened to kill herself. So obviously I was like, that's the biggest red flag known to fucking mankind. So I broke things off. Since then, a lot of things have been coming out that she was doing behind my back. Um, turns out she had a Tinder account while we were dating, and she was fucking other guys while we were dating as well. I believe the term someone described to me was heartfelt blowjobs in a bathroom once. Um, she fucked one of my then friends. I mean, obviously, she's no longer my friend. Tried to sleep with a lot of my friends. Slept with strangers. And I know I should be happy this woman is out of my life. But at the same time, I just feel so broken down. And I understand going on it's not going to help me or anything but just the more that comes out the more i feel just fucking depressed honestly and i just i don't know what else to do like i've been making good changes in life and everything like working out and everything it's just like and focusing on school but i'm just torn down at this point and i feel like like the wind's just been sucked out of me you're doing everything right. You're doing everything you need to do. You don't need me. Just keep doing what you're doing. Telling yourself over and over and over again that you are fortunate, that you are lucky, that you got out relatively unscathed. Yeah, you're hurt. Yeah, you're reeling. Yeah, you had to cut a few friends out of your life because they betrayed you. But you aren't in divorce court. You aren't hashing out marital property with lawyers. You didn't scramble your DNA together with this woman. You don't have kids, so you're not going to have to see her ever again. You don't have to co-parent with her. A few months, seven months, so I guess more than a few, but less than a year you spent with this woman. And now you know. You learned a valuable lesson that when you see those red flags, when someone is clingy and controlling and takes themselves hostage to threaten you, which is what those threats of suicide amount to, that's when you bail. And you bail right away. You don't put up with that kind of crap from anyone. So valuable life lesson learned. You may encounter a woman very like this woman again in the future. And you know what? Thanks to this woman, you won't waste one extra minute with the next woman who pulls this kind of bullshit with you. You will know to pull the ripcord immediately. And you will be grateful to this woman in some small perverse way for teaching you that valuable life lesson. And you will remind yourself again at that time that you were lucky. No marriage to dissolve, no kids to share. You got out relatively unscathed. Hey, Dan, 26-year-old male from the currently living in the Midwest. Uh, I have a question about my girlfriend and her menstrual cycle. So my girlfriend and I have sex very regularly, and she's a very small, physically small girl. And she tells me that I have 
a pretty big dick. And so in the past, when the two of us have had sex uh, and she's been close to getting her period, I have actually fucked her hard enough and have caused her period to start. Now, my question is, is this a thing? Has this happened to other people? Is this something that I need to be worried about? I mean, the two of us are definitely heading towards the marriage part since the two of us live together. And I'm nervous that, you know, when the two of us are thinking about having kids down the road, that this could hinder us having kids. So if you could give me some advice or any information, that would be great. Joining me by phone to help field this absolutely amazing question, Dr. Leah Torres, OBGYN in Salt Lake City, and one of the superstars of Twitter. You should be following her at Leah N. Torres, and a frequent guest on the show. Hey, Dr. Torres, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me again. So let's just get right to it. Can a dick knock a period out of a lady or what? So this is such an interesting thing because I get a lot of similar questions all the time, and men are very worried that their penises have some sort of magical superpower of injury like it's no so it's not going to happen but i have a lot are you telling me my penis isn't magic either i mean i haven't examined you (laughs) to be fair to be fair (laughs) okay let's talk about this guy's we're examining this guy's penis let's leave my penis out of it so this guy thinks his penis is magic and can induce periods and his lady friend right no and i'm sure that's not what he means but this is a common concern, even sometimes anxiety amongst couples who are trying to get pregnant or are pregnant, they're concerned that intercourse will somehow harm the pregnancy. And first of all, no. Have sex as often and however you want before, during, and after pregnancy. That is just, we we wouldn't be here today as human beings if we couldn't do that. Uh, secondly, what I think is happening is probably you know, right before someone has their period, their cervix gets a little softer. That allows, you know, the opening to the uterus to let the period, sorry, Dan, blood out. Um, So that's probably what's happening. It's just a little more sensitive, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I can tell them if I'm going to, I can just simplify menzies for everyone out there. If she's about to have her period, she's already declared herself not pregnant two weeks before. Because that's when the chance of fertility was. So if she's about to have her period, she's just about to have her period. She's not pregnant. But if she is pregnant, much time has gone by such that the pregnancy is implanted safe and tucked away in the wall of the uterus and no harm can come to it from a penis. So his dick isn't going to be a plunger that knocks the fetus out of her when they're trying to have babies. No, but could you imagine how much easier my job would be if that were the case? <laughs> yeah, that you could just, we wouldn't have this <laughs> never-ending abortion debate. People could just, if they didn't want exactly. to have, like, the, they didn't want to have, have a have baby, sex. go to have sex and that will induce the period. And that's not possible. You can't induce the period. Somebody's pregnant, she's pregnant. But could, you know, the somebody's going to have a period and so there's this sort of bloody lining I'm not going to be very good at this. You describe it, I'm sure, better than I do. Uh, that's going to slough off. That's going, to, that's going to be expelled. Could sex result in that expulsion coming a little bit sooner than it might otherwise than if a woman was just walking around waiting for her period? If she was about ready to have her period and had sex with her massively hung boyfriend, could that get her period to arrive hours earlier than it might otherwise? 
Well, I think let's let's keep in mind though that the starting when you say start of a period in my brain and in the medical brain it means hormone changes. So hormone dropping. When general people out there talk about start of a period, they mean bleeding. So that's what yes, I meant. I'm being general. I mean, I'm being basic. I meant that. Right. <laughs> You're being the basic. <laughs> the the bleeding could start, but it doesn't mean that the period is necessarily starting. Mm. So the difference is, yeah, it could start a couple hours before, but it's not necessarily because the uterus got jostled. It's just that with any anything, it could just there's a variation. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, she starts to spot after they have intercourse when she's expecting her period. In my mind, that just means the cervix was a little bit softer because her period's about to come and it needs to be softer for that lining to come out. Okay, but for clarity's sake and one more time for emphasis, you're not going to knock a baby out with your dick. Correct. Have all the sex. Dr. Leah Torres, OBGYN. You should be following her on Twitter at Leah and Torres. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Hi, I am a cis pansexual woman uh, living in a small city in the West. I uh, run a small cleaning business. And I recently had a very upsetting situation occur. I arrived to clean a home and the bathtub was full of semen. I didn't realize what I was cleaning at first. I thought that it was shampoo or body gel. And when uh, it became apparent what it was, I was incredibly upset and shaken. And so now I'm trying to decide how to let the client know that my boundaries were crossed. It is a couple, husband and wife, and I actually lead consent workshops and was thinking about leaving some consent material and the consent zine in the bathtub the next time I clean, which will also be the last, and then send both husband and wife a text saying uh, something about the situation. But I'm not sure what I should say. Can you help me out, Dan? A bathtub full of semen. That is impressive. That is one either massive individual load or thousands and thousands and thousands of loads shot over a long period of time to fill the bathroom. Sorry, I shouldn't be joking about this. You're clearly upset. I'm trying to imagine a circumstance under which that could happen where the guy shot some load in the tub and forgot about it. That makes some sort of plausible sense. You know, people have sex in their bathroom, they have sex in the tub or they rub one out in the morning. People are generally pretty good about washing that down the drain. There's two ways this went. Either the dude or the dude and his wife left that load there for you because they derived secret thrills from the idea of you having to scrub the semen out of their tub, in which case, yeah, consent is one of the issues that must be addressed here and assholery and inconsideration and selfishness are other issues that might need to be addressed. Or the Mr., the, the husband jacked off in the morning and blew one in the tub. And in his hurry to leave the house or to get out of the tub, he neglected to do what he would normally do. I'm assuming that if he's a morning jack offer in the shower, as some men are, and you've been cleaning his house on the regular for a period of time, he's jacked off in the tub previously without leaving you a load to clean up. 
So it was a brain fart. It was uh, a moment's neglectfulness. Usually he's pretty good about washing it down the drain, but he missed some of it. I'm assuming, I'm assuming he didn't fill the tub with cum. I'm assuming there were a couple of splashes of ropes there and not oodles and scads and gallons and buckets of cum everywhere. And so it was an oversight that he missed it. He missed a spot or he missed a few spots or he just forgot. If it was the former, if they were doing this for secret thrills, as was the case with a guy who wrote to Savage Love years ago to tell me that he was having a problem with this compulsion when he was at a friend's house to go to the bathroom and jack off and put a little bit of cum on everybody's toothbrush. I'm going to let you all sit with that for a second. Everyone's going to go buy lock boxes for their bathrooms now to put their toothbrushes in because there's someone out there doing that. If it's like that, if it's a secret thrill thing, you should just cut them off and never see them again and never clean their house again. And you don't have to give them a reason, although you might want to. But I have to say that the latter seems the likelier answer, that this is Mr. Jack off in the tub in the morning. And this one time he neglected to wash everything down the drain before he exited the bathroom, as is his usual custom. And when you tell him what happened, when you say, hey, I'm down for cleaning your house and you guys have been good clients, I am not down for cleaning up bodily fluids. If somebody's going to jack off in the tub in the morning, and I think it might be you, sir, simple consideration of the people that you have hired to clean up your house requires you to clean that little bit of mess up all by your lonesome. He's probably going to be mortified. He's probably going to apologize profusely, and I think that you would welcome that apology. I think it might be helpful for you to hear that apology. So rather than being passive aggressive, rather than leaving consent literature in their tub, just be direct. Be direct. Use your words, as we like to say around here, before you go over. And you can do it by email if you don't want to have a face-to-face -face conversation. Just say, there was semen left in the tub last time I came over to clean. I don't handle fluids, bodily fluids. I expect you guys to clean those messes up yourself and we will do the deep cleaning of everything else. And you will hopefully then get a response that sets your mind at ease and makes you feel comfortable continuing to have them as clients. And if you don't get a response that sets your mind at ease, if you believe it is the former, that this is suddenly them taking secret jollies at the thought of you having to clean up his semen, cut him off. After you have that email exchange, say that they need to find new people to clean their house. But don't go with the consent literature move because you're a cool, hip, queer, pansexual, direct, consent workshop leading person. And those types of people, in my experience, don't go for passive-aggressive moves. They go for direct communication moves. Go for the direct. Communicate. Use your words. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to have a chat about a new comics anthology that's out and is sitting on my desk and I read it over the last couple of weeks and it is amazing and you should pick it up. And the man responsible for it is on the phone with us, critically acclaimed gay comics and screenwriter Mark Andreco. He's the originator, curator of the New York Times bestselling and glad nominated anthology, Love is Love. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Very well. How are you? Good. Uh, I suppose I should read the, the subtitle for the Love is Love collection, a comic book anthology to benefit the survivors of the Orlando Pulse shooting. Of course, I don't think I need to remind listeners of this program what the Pulse shooting was, a massacre in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub uh, a year ago now. Has it been a year already? Yeah. Uh, June 13, June 12th, 13th, that night, it's coming up on a year. 49 uh, people were 
brutally murdered by an insane psychopath and dozens were wounded and it was it was a harrowing moment uh, and it was the worst mass gun shooting the worst massacre uh, i think in the history of the united states and mark you were inspired uh, first of all we should talk about what you do you work in comics yeah i've been uh, i've been writing comics and film and television for going on 20 years as i joke i started in junior high school but that's a lie uh uh, yeah, so I've been I've been a comic book reader since I was four years old, and been uh, writing them since nineteen gosh twenty three years now. And you're responsible for a recent uh, what do they call it? I know what you call it in film a reboot. I don't know what you call it in comics, but the recent Wonder Woman seventy seven series where you brought back Wonder Woman. Yeah, it's actually not a reboot. We're just kind of continuing the adventures of the Linda Carter show, uh, but because it's a comic book and because it's you can draw a tank just as quickly as you can draw a spaceship. We have an unlimited special effects budget. So I get to <laughs> do things. I get to do things they didn't get to do back in the seventies when it was only basically Nazis and gangsters. She thought. And you were inspired. Uh, that's always an awkward word. Like people use that about the, it gets better project. Like Terry and I were inspired by a suicide to found the, it gets better project. Uh, we were so motivated. I like to say to found the, it gets better project. Cause we felt the urge to do something. You were motivated in the wake of the pulse shooting to create this anthology, to call for comic book artists to respond to the shooting uh, with with their art. And that, that seems like an unlikely approach, an unlikely uh, creative community, artistic community to call upon. But it works so wonderfully well. Reading this anthology is so moving and heartbreaking. What, what, what you know, besides it's the field that you work in, what inspired you or motivated you to do this? Well, you know, I you know, I, I went to bed the night of the shooting and it said that there was a shooting at a nightclub and I'm like, Oh, there's been a shooting at a nightclub in America. It must be a day in America. Hmm. And then I then I woke up the next morning and saw the numbers and I became physically ill. Um, I was just I was just so it, it brought back all the sort of fear and terror and and grief that I felt as a teenager in the age of AIDS because I was thirteen when the AIDS crisis started. So I, I saw, you know, I lived right through that. You know, I always say if I was 10 years older, I might be dead or might have had hundreds of funerals to have gone to. So I remember that the, 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 it just was almost a PTSD of the immensity of the loss, but concentrated in this one event. And as it also as a child of the 80s, I grew up on We Are the World and Comic Relief and Hands Across America. And my, I just went on Facebook and I said, we as a comics community should do something. I want to organize a book. You know, if, if people want to do this book, I'll organize it. And then... I went to Los Angeles Gay Pride that afternoon because uh, as, as, as a gay man of a certain age, I don't really gay pride feels a little bit out of my uh, out of my realm of experience these mm-hmm. days. But I felt like I felt like I had to go and be seen. I wasn't going to be afraid. I wasn't going to hide in my house. And my friend and his wife called me and said, "Hey, we want to take you." So I my my two cool straight buddies took me to a gay pride and spent the day there. And then I came home and my email and my voicemail and my in my inbox on Facebook, I had 75 people saying, we're in, we want to do this book. So I figured, oh, I guess I'm going to make a comic book. And then from there, I called, you know, I reached out to two people I knew, um, my friend Chris Ryle, who was, who was the editor-in-chief of IDW Comics. And then I reached out to my friend Diane Nelson, who runs DC Entertainment over at Warner Brothers. And both of them said, we want to be a part of this. Whatever you need, we, we're in. And they each they each gave me an editor from their companies, both um, uh, Sarah Gatos from IDW and Jamie Rich from DC, 
both of whom are editing 15 or 16 projects at any given time. And they, they volunteered to do this. And the rest is history. I just started calling all my friends and their friends and some names I thought would help and people that would be interested in it. And, and it just sort of snowballed. And looking back at it now, you know, now the book's been out for a couple of months. I look back and I think, what was I thinking? How did we do this? You know, it was such a, from, from June 13th to December 13th when it came out, it was just nonstop. Everyone was deeply affected by this gay, straight, bi, questioning, male, mm-hmm. female, different religions, you know, different, you know, trans people. Everyone was affected by this. This was an event that hit the gay community, but it was an event that tore the hearts open of, of human beings. And that's what I wanted to express. I wanted to reach out and I wanted to show, sorry, <laughs> oh, it's been, it's been six months and I still get like this. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to show that, well, you know, as the title says, love is love. You shouldn't, we shouldn't hate people because they love people. We should all be in love and have someone love us. And that's what unifies us. So. We shouldn't need an event like this to teach us that lesson, but it seems over and over again, we not need, but only events like this seem to teach us this lesson, seem to open people's minds. Um, you know, and, and that has been the case throughout struggles for, for, for civil equality. You think of uh, Emmett Till uh, and his murder um, uh, under Jim Crow and during the you know early years of the civil rights movement and how that shamed the nation and forced people to face up to what this kind of racist intolerance and violence uh, that we – Allowed for um, Emmett Till's mother is is a hero of mine. What you know by showing her son by not making them when he was in the coffin look like he did, showing what the results of his violence were. Mm-hmm. That woman, oof, we should all have the the, the 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 courage that she had because you're right. It, it shamed the nation, and sometimes we need to do that. Love is Love features all sorts of kinds of narratives. There are personal memoir uh, that are very simple and straightforward. There's fantasy. There are superhero stories in this collection. How do superheroes speak to this moment? Well, you know, the, there's, a, there's a substantial audience of superhero stories in the gay and lesbian community. You know, for a lot of straight guys, it's, you know, being the big buff idealized guy who, who, who saves the world. And for a lot of gay people, historically, secret identities, you know, you, you have to hide a substantial part of who you are, and that part you're hiding is who you really are. So there's been resonance, and there's all there's been tons and tons of gay and lesbian creators in comics, and in my experience as an out creator, all the publishers I've ever worked with have been nothing but progressive. Particularly DC Comics, who I've done a lot of work for. Mm-hmm. I've written gay characters for them, going back to my first work for them 20 years ago. And if anything, they would say go further. They would never say pull back. And they were they were specifically very progressive before diversity and progressiveness were buzzwords. They they would. They treated gay characters just as characters, and they normalized stuff. So to be able to reach out to the community in comics and reach out in a way that, you know, I I could have written a check to the to the Red Cross, and the moment I mail that check, I've compartmentalized it and I can move on. Events like this are supposed to hurt, and they're supposed to hurt for a long time. And by, you know, gathering all these artists and creators, not only did we get to do cathartic work for ourselves to sort of process our own feelings about this event. We gave something to people that when they bought it, when they donate the $10 to buy the book, they have something to look at and can revisit over the years. And, 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 you know, I've had, I've had so many people, so many gay kids in the middle of the country reach out to me and thank me for the book. And I've had 
I've had a couple of the parents of some of the people who were killed reach out to me and thank me for organizing this book. Mm. And I've had so many people in my wildest dreams. I could not have imagined that not only would this book be a beautiful piece of artwork, a beautiful, consistent, you know, anthologies are always a crapshoot. And this is, this is just the consistency level of the emotion and the, the work is beautiful, but it's, but it's reached out to me, but we have seven foreign publishers who now want to publish it in their countries with, in their languages with different local artists to, to, to aid LGB charities in seven countries across, across the globe. That's tremendous. All from, all from, all from a Facebook idea I had out of my grief on a Saturday. It, it, it's so overwhelming and I'm so happy that it's become bigger than me and has become this thing where people are really, really moved by this book. And it's, you know, I, I was, moved I, by I it. And, I, and I have to say, well, two things I quickly want to say. Uh, I'm not surprised that there were so many uh, comic book companies that were out in front on the queer issue uh, decades ago, because we forget now with all these superhero movies and comic book movies, basically that comics were an outsider art. Uh, for a very long time and there was a stigma and there was marginalization uh, that impacted the comics community and comic book readers um, and, and even legislative attacks on comic books. And so it's not a surprise that people in the comics industry identified with the outsiders that were also queer because they themselves uh, were outsiders, uh, outsiders who had been marginalized. And the second thing is, you know, we, we talk about social media, we talk about online bullying, we talk about, uh, you know, sexist harassment of, of women who are online or on Twitter. We talk about how uh, social media has really empowered haters and anti-Semites. Um, but social media can also take an idea like the one that you had. You can put it on Facebook. Uh, social media can take an idea like the Gets Better Project, Terry and I's idea, and just make it happen. It can You can reach like-minded people of goodwill instantly and all over the world and create change and create positive change using this tool. Oh, absolutely. A lot of these artists are, are, or people that live all, you know, we have uh, the, the artists and writers are from all over the globe. Um, you know, the, and, and I reached out to all these people who, who, who we were Facebook friends, and a lot of these artists and writers I've never actually met personally, and I just reached out to them. And without fail, everyone immediately said, yes, what can I do? And then people said, you know, I don't want it to be too emotional. I don't want it to be too raw. I'm like, I want it to be emotional and raw. This was an ugly event. We can have some ugly emotion in this. It is. And, and with the exception, you know, I have to say, uh, I sat and read this book in my office and, and cried over and over again. There are different, you know, stories more than a few pages. And every other story is just devastating and gutting or, 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 or moving and gutting. And there are some that are just one page with one idea with a poem or some art and some commentary. And it's just, it's a staggeringly beautiful and effective and impactful uh, book that you've put together. Well, that means a lot coming from you because I know you are a man not short on opinion. And I, I agree <laughs> with you. I agree with you 99.9 times out of a hundred. And I knew, knew if anybody was bullshit on something, Right, and I can't. And you know what? My my appreciation for it even carries more weight because comics aren't my thing. Comics are my brother Billy's thing, and I didn't grow up reading comics. Um, and yet, this totally worked for me. Even the superhero stuff. You know, I, I knew there would be an audience in the comic book world, but the fact that this has you know debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list and has been a bestseller on Amazon since the day it came out is is just it's just gratifying to people. I you know I have. I've heard from hundreds of people who have bought multiple copies and give it to friends who don't read comics. And that's what I would like. You know, I just want people to realize that 
that, you know, like the title says, you know, it sounds a little hackneyed. Love is love. We should, we should celebrate love in all forms because there's certainly not, there's certainly not enough of it in the world right now. And you shouldn't be threatened by people being in love. You should, you should want to celebrate that and encourage it. Mark and Draco, critically acclaimed gay comics author and screenwriter. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about Love is Love. And I hope that any of my listeners out there who didn't yet know about Love is Love get online and order some copies and help keep it at the top of the charts. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Hey, a quick note about the calls you're about to hear. I had to record a few calls in not our usual studio, so the sound quality on the next few calls is a little different. Just so you're braced, you never know, differing sound quality could be triggering for some folks. Here we go. Hey, Dan. I'm a heterosexual female in a monogamous relationship, and I'm kind of at the edge of my rope with the relationship. I've been dating this guy for almost two years, and he doesn't go down on me, and I don't come. And we've talked about it a couple of times and he said that it's not really his thing. Um, and we've tried to use workarounds, you know, like vibrators and toys, and he doesn't like using those either. I mean, he just really wants missionary. He comes, I don't end game. So, I mean, I'm really in love with him. I, he's sweet and kind and funny. And apparently, I mean, a feminist aside from this, so I don't really know what to do. I mean, I thought we were going to get married and this orgasm thing that I'm not ever, ever doing is really bothering me. We've talked about it in a lot of different ways and I've kind of expressed my frustration and my confusion that he can't seem to prioritize my pleasure at the same priority level as his own. And he denies it and says that he feels terrible that I'm not coming, but then he doesn't try anything. He doesn't do anything. I mean, I'm into a little bit of kink. You know, if you're not going to go down on me, maybe just tie me up a little bit, but that freaks him out too. And I don't know, I want to be understanding and I love him, but I don't know where to go from here. You know, I've talked to him about it so much and I'm kind of tired of having the same conversations over and over again. Maybe there's something that I'm missing, something I could do to help him. He's just really shy about it. He hates having those conversations. But I, I can't live the rest of my life like this. And we're talking about marriage, and it just seems kind of crazy at this juncture. So I don't know. Maybe just give me some ideas. I don't want to think that he's as selfish as he seems, but the evidence is pointing pretty negatively. First, a word to not the caller, but the listeners. Was I the only one who screamed out loud when she said he thought of himself as a feminist this guy thinks of himself as a feminist was i the only one who went what what no okay caller he is exactly as selfish as he seems where do you go from here the door the door is where you go from here out the door right out the door, never to return. That's where you go. He is not sweet, kind, and funny for real. The sweet, kind, and funny is an act, and he certainly isn't a fucking feminist. He's sweet and kind and funny enough to keep you around thinking you can fix him, just like the previous caller, that you're chemo and it's cancer, and if you just keep pumping yourself into his veins, he'll be cured magically because you have that power. No, 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 you don't. Sweet, kind, funny, an act, an act to keep you, not a feminist. He wants you around to be his fleshlight. He wants you around to be his box of Kleenex by the side of the bed. He wants you around to be his dirty tube sock that he picked up off the floor so he can jack off inside you. 
Yeah, no. No, it's over. Over and done. He is incapable of meeting your sexual needs. You have my permission to be a dude about this. What would a guy do in a circumstance like this if he wasn't into chastity, cum denial, and femdom? What would a guy do in a circumstance like this where his girlfriend climbed up on his dick every once in a while, used it as a dildo to get herself off, made herself cum, and then jumped the fuck off and went to bed and treated him like there was something wrong with him if he advocated for his own pleasure? That guy wouldn't stick around one whole evening. That guy would be in his pants and out the door without his shirt. He'd still be pulling his shirt on as he ran down the stairs to get the fuck out of that woman's apartment. You have my permission to do the same. You shouldn't be talking about marriage with this guy. You shouldn't be even talking to this guy. You should be blocking this guy's number on your phone and warning your friends about this guy. Should any of them think about dating him after you're done? Because the kind, sweet, funny feminist thing is a fucking lie meant to keep your pussy wrapped around his dick in place of his fist. You are an object, an inanimate object to him. You are not a human being. You are not a person. A man who would treat a woman like that is not a feminist. He's barely a human being. And you can't fix him. Your pussy ain't chemo. Your pussy ain't magic. If you keep applying your pussy to his dick, he's not going to get better. Stop applying your pussy to his dick thinking it's going to fix him. It ain't going to fix him. Get the fuck out. I think I speak for everyone who's listening to your call when I say, when we all say, DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old pansexual queer living on the East Coast. I'm in a new dom sub relationship. Um, It's sort of unfamiliar territory for me, but I'm stoked on it. and. Um, we've come up with a list of parameters and protocols that I'm to follow at all times. I'm a sub at all times, even outside the bedroom. And one of the ways that he wants me to submit is by always submitting to him sexually at any given time. And that's one rule that I don't, that I'm not really on board with, but he seems to think that If I'm not on board with that, then I'm not really on board with the whole thing. So how can I keep my ability to say no or I don't want sex right now while still maintaining the dynamic of dominance and submission? My first impulse is to tell you to go find a better dom, to go find a more realistic dom and a more reasonable dom than this dude. But if you're into this dude and want to stay with this dude, which, again, I don't think you should do, here's the advice. And it's advice for him. It's advice that he would have to take. How do you submit to him? How do you have the ability to say no to sex if you're not feeling it in the moment and also maintain the dom-sub dynamic that drew you guys together and turns you both on. Well, there has to be an out for you, and it can be a punishment out. If he wants sex and you're not feeling it, you can say no. And there is some established consequence for that, for you saying no, that is bearable and endurable, but you know, a punishment. If you want out and you want no sex right now and you have to decline his order slash request for sex, and it's always requests, it's only a pretend order, you get, for example, I don't know, spanked 20 times on the butt with a belt. 
Maybe not at that precise moment, because you might not be feeling that either, but that gets banged. There's some punishment that either happens immediately, that's not sex, that you can bear, or that punishment gets banked for later, when you are feeling, when you are having a scene, and he gets to punish you for not following his orders earlier. That's one way to maintain the dom-sub dynamic, while also retaining your ability to say no, and you have to have that ability. Another way to maintain the dom-sub dynamic and your ability to say no, find a better dom. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s straight male from the South, and I just want to get your opinion on my situation. Um, I've been with my girlfriend for eight months, and we're currently on a trip to visit my grandmother and with my parents, and they got us a hotel room for all of us. It's a two-bedroom hotel. And because we're not married, they're not comfortable with us sleeping in the same bed together. And so we're about to go to bed, but I need to sleep on the floor. And even though we're not going to have sex or anything, we can't sleep in the same bed. So I was just wondering if you think I should have maybe approached this differently, if I should have got our own hotel room um, and paid for it, or if I should have like put up a fight and be like, no, we're going to sleep in the same bed anyways, or should I just like accept their wishes and do what I'm going to do right now anyways and sleep on the floor, but whatever. By the time you hear this, I'll have left and I slept on the floor, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. If your deranged parents are paying for the hotel room, then your deranged parents get to assign sleeping berths. The right move you say so yourself. The right move is renting your own hotel room if your parents are going to play these kinds of baby games with their adult children who they damn well know are fucking their girlfriends. So next time mom and dad make a reservation, ask them, are you going to force me to sleep on the floor again? Because I ain't sleeping on the floor. In my apartment, in her apartment, in our apartment, if you guys already live together, we share a bed. In a hotel room, we're going to share a bed. If you're going to get the hotel room and we're all going to share a hotel room to save money, I'm not sleeping on the floor. I'm going to share a bed with my girlfriend like I do everywhere else. If that's not okay with you, I will because I am a fucking adult pay for my own goddamn hotel room and sleep with my girlfriend in the bed. And I'm going to fuck her in the bed and I'm going to fuck her on the dresser and I'm going to fuck her in the bathroom and we're going to fuck on the floor, but we're not going to fucking sleep on the floor. Period. Mom, dad, the end. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling about episode 545 about the woman whose boyfriend wanted to see her smoking and how your recommendation that was maybe that she get a vape pen or something like that. Um, I would just like to note that there's a lot of research going on right now on nicotine and how um, that's actually so bad for you and um, how that affects your brain is, is really bad for you. It's not just tobacco that's bad for your lungs. So I would recommend getting herbal cigarettes, um, which are used a lot on set in movies and things like that, um, may, maybe as an alternative. Hi, Dan. I wanted to respond to Erica Moen's sex toy segment in episode 545. I'm all for sex toy positivity and properly prioritizing women's sexual pleasure wherever that comes from. But I really thought that Erica underplayed and brushed off the idea of women getting dependent on their vibrators. And I think it's something you actually don't stress enough on the show. Like Erica, I was non-orgasmic until a vibrator taught me how, but it wasn't until I cut way back on my vibrator that I was able to orgasm through regular sex at all. I found orgasms from regular sex to be way more powerful and satisfying on both an emotional and physical level, and I'm so glad I learned how. I actually found this out thanks to your frequent advice to teenage boys, but not usually girls, 
to vary their masturbation technique, and I applied that advice to myself. I don't really see why training yourself to depend on a particular masturbation technique should be framed as a problem for men, but perfectly okay for women. Anyway, everyone should get themselves off in their favorite way, whatever that is, but I'm personally so glad that you indirectly convinced me to lay off my vibrator, and I don't think it makes anyone tech-phobic to want to pursue orgasms outside that particular method. Thanks. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about the gal in episode 545 who's having an issue with peeing while giving head. I'm in med school, and it sounds to me like what she has is called stress incontinence, where her urinary sphincter gives a little bit when the pressure inside her abdomen increases, like when she's coughing, running, or in this case, gagging. It might be worth checking with a doctor to be sure that she's emptying her bladder fully when she goes to the bathroom. But otherwise, the mainstay of treatment for stress incontinence is Kegel exercises. Contract those pelvic floor muscles for 10 seconds at a time, release for 10, and repeat. Three sets of 10 each day seems to be the standard recommendation. Happy gagging. Before we go, we're going to remind you that we have a live show coming up this week in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall on April 14th, Good Friday. You're going to want to be there. Jesus is going to be there. The Easter Bunny is going to be there. Rachel Lark is going to be there. And more. Go to portlandmercury.com slash Easter to get your tickets. They're going fast. Please join us if you're in the area. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. If you want more of me running my mouth about politics, you should be listening to The Strangers weekly political podcast, Blabbermouth, which you can find on all your podcasting platforms. Read my weekly sex advice column, Savage Love, in The Stranger and other weekly newspapers all across the country. And you should by now be following me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mark and Draco on Twitter at Mark and Draco. He spells Mark with a C. And follow Leah Torres on Twitter, Dr. Leah Torres on Twitter, at Leah N. Torres. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.